The audio you are about to hear was recorded at the 2018 USA-Canada Region District Superintendents Retreat in Carlsbad, California. Our prayer is that you are blessed by this message. Wow, I feel like we have just been ushered into God's holy presence tonight, don't you? Thank you again so much for your sacrifice of coming here and playing for us. We are blessed by your ministry. Thank you. And this has just been a blessing and a privilege to be here with all of you these last few days. I feel like I, feel like I have learned so much. I feel like this has been a time of all of us growing together. And you know, for me, this is, a, this is interesting for both Philly and me. This is our first time to do this, and maybe with a little bit of fear and trepidation. <laughs> but you know, tonight I want to express my gratitude to my colleagues. A lot of people ask me, what's this like <laughs> to be doing this job? And, uh, and I just want to say a huge thanks publicly to the men that I get to serve with because it has been an incredible privilege to become a part of this team. And I have felt nothing but support and encouragement. And I believe that God is calling us together to be a team that God wants to use in this church. And I don't, you know, we don't pretend like we have the answers because this is so much larger than any one of us. But it is an honor and I just want to say publicly thank you to all of you and what a joy it is. I do have to say this morning I was just a little disappointed that Philly didn't talk about his hair at all. <clears throat> I thought that was supposed to be our theme. So I'm going to tell on him. He came into the office the other day and I was in there and he had just gotten back from being over on his tour over in Asia Pacific and I had just gotten in from being in Africa. And I looked at him and I said... Wow, you have a lot more gray hair than I knew you had. <laughs> I said, what happened to you on this trip? And he said to me, he says, well, it's just when my hair grows out, you can see it all. And so he says, I'm going to take care of that. So he went and got it all cut off, and now we don't get to see his gray hair. So that's the way he takes care of it. Um, <clears throat> I was also never... You know, these trips, sometimes they're kind of long. Uh, some of these have been kind of long, and so I don't, and ladies, you're going to get this. Like, I, you know, to get your hair done, sometimes it's like eight weeks in that trip. And, um, and so, like, this should not be any real shock to all of you. This is not my natural hair color. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and so... I was sharing with some of the dear folks I was with in Africa that I needed to get home, and, you know, there's lots of things you got to get taken care of. And I loved this. They just looked at me, because, you know, I really stick out over there. And they just looked at me, and they said, you mean you have that done on purpose? <laughs> I, you know, this is a weird color to them. So, so we all have our hair issues. Yep, yep, but we're grateful to have them. My dad said, could you just keep it that color until I'm gone? He said, I don't want to think that I am an old man and have an old daughter, said the 90-year-old man. <laughs> so, well, it is a privilege to be here and to share with you a little bit tonight. Um, I want to thank you all for your prayers for Chuck. I know that the spouses group 
prayed especially for him today, and you all sent a picture to him. And you know what? This afternoon, right before I was coming, he texted me, and he said, I don't know, but he said, my vision is suddenly better this afternoon. And he said, I actually have some peripheral vision, so... I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for praying, and thank you for being a part of this journey with us. <coughs> I apologize for my voice, but at least I can speak better than yesterday when I could hardly speak at all. <coughs> These last few months have been rather hectic in our lives. <coughs> we've moved, <coughs> and we've tried to make some adjustments to a new way of life. And when we moved into the new house, as you all know, you begin sorting and you begin going through a lot of things. And I was working on my filing cabinet. And as I was going through the boxes of all the files, I opened up a file and I ran into a savings bond. And it was a savings bond made out to a lady by the name of Jean Cantrell. And as I looked at this savings bond, a lot of memories were kind of flooding my mind as I began to think about this young lady, Jean Cantrell, you see, I met her at a gas station in Union, Missouri, many, many years ago. Chuck was in his first ministry assignment after seminary. We were living in St. Louis, Missouri. I was trying to do my part of the ministry, helping support us by working as a nurse. I was working for St. Louis University Medical Center and I was doing occupational health, and I would get sent every day to a toxic waste cleanup site where I worked as the health and safety officer. I worked with an entire construction crew, and my responsibility was to keep that whole team of men safe in the work that they were doing. Now, it was hot. It was summertime in Missouri. And so every day, I would go to the local gas station where I had to buy ice, water, and Gatorade to keep these guys hydrated. And sometimes, depending on the heat, I was going several times a day. While I was there, I got to know Jean, Jean, who worked behind the counter at the gas station. Now, Jean and I would be quite an unlikely pair considering her life. Jean was from kind of the backwoods there of Missouri, she had a number of family members that were in prison. She had finally completed a GED. Her parents were both alcoholics. And she really didn't see much hope for a future in her life. And yet we struck up a conversation every day. She was friendly. We got to know one another. And somewhere along the line, I just would talk to her, and I wanted her desperately to get to know Jesus. And eventually, she did accept Jesus into her heart and life, and when Chuck and I moved to Austin, Texas, she packed up from Union, Missouri, and she moved to Austin, Texas with us. It was somewhere along the line that we were trying to help her understand about saving, <laughs> that we bought a savings bond for her. <clears throat> but you know what? I have a confession to make about Jean. Her background was really, really rough. And I had really high expectations for her and her transformation. And there were times that I was sometimes hard on her. And in hindsight, I sometimes wonder, was I more concerned about my reputation of helping someone be changed through an encounter with Christ than I was really, truly concerned about Jean and her well-being? You see, I had been to Chick Shaver's personal evangelism class. 
How many of you have? I see those hands. We're called chicklets, you know. But I'd been to that class, and I was passionate about personal evangelism, and I wanted to make sure I was doing everything right. But what was my passion? What was the driving force of my desire to help Jean know Jesus? And I just have to tell you, I've been pondering those questions as I prepared tonight's message. For me, this is a special time of the year. We're all enjoying this beautiful meal tonight because do you know what tomorrow is? It's Ash Wednesday tomorrow. It begins, now you're getting it, right? (laughs) Enjoy that chocolate, I don't know, whatever. But it marks the beginning of the Lenten season. And as we enter into this time of year, we we are drawn now into the Lenten journey. And I just want us to think about this for a moment. We are drawn into a journey, a time when we really emphasize identifying with Christ participating with Christ in obedience, which will lead to sacrifice and ultimately to the cross. The path of sacrifice will lead us to tonight's story, which is the story of the prodigal son, and I'll eventually get there. But it finds its place in the culmination of three stories the prodigal son does. It talks about three different stories in in, um, Luke chapter 15, about three different things that are lost. And before I get to the prodigal son, I just kind of want to get us into the context of the chapter. It says at the beginning of the chapter, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Now just think about that a minute. This is the scene. Jesus, the tax collectors, the sinners, they are coming near to listen to him. But on the other side, we have the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're standing around in the middle of this scene, and they are grumbling. They're not happy with what they see, and they're saying, this fellow, he welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. You see, this was part of Jesus' journey, the pathway that he prepares for you, and he prepares for all of us, that we will take, he's going to take us from our comfort zones and into interaction with the lost The scribes and the Pharisees were in their comfort zone, and Jesus was ushering in the sinners and tax collectors, and this was a long ways away from their comfort zones. Oh. The Pharisees and the scribes were angry. They thought, doesn't he understand what he is doing? But you know, he knew exactly what he was doing, and they're starting to connect the dots, and they're saying, this is not a good thing. Here was Jesus, and they wanted to, you know, who was this man? Was he maybe the Messiah? Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was. But this man was welcoming the worst sinners to come and to listen to his preaching. And I'm just trying to imagine what the religious officials were thinking. Surely, if he were the Messiah, wouldn't he have planned better? Wouldn't he have planned where he could have come and he could have spoken and to the people that he could have spoken to? I mean, if he came today, wouldn't we imagine that he needs to pick out probably the biggest church in America to go and get to the biggest Christian crowd? I mean, somehow you'd think maybe he's going to be at Saddleback or he's going to be up at Willow Creek or help us if he goes to Joel Olstein, but he might. You just never know. It seems like the place that he ought to go, right? But if you can just imagine, Jesus wasn't interested in those places. 
And it's the equivalent of Jesus showing up to preach at a strip club in downtown Los Angeles. And the religious leaders are pretty furious about what Jesus is doing. But then Jesus shares with them these three stories about things that are lost. The first story is about lost sheep. And sheep, from what I understand, tend to be rather dumb. They do stupid things, like they just wander away and they get really close to like walking off of cliffs. And yet, for those who are not so bright, they've simply sort of wandered away. The shepherd goes and the shepherd goes and collects them and brings them back. And Jesus is sharing this message of passion. And he's sharing this message to let them know that the shepherd goes to the ones that even just on their own are wandering around without knowing what they're doing. And we talk about prevenient grace. Wesley called it preventing grace. It's this grace that comes and and grabs you and, and tries to keep you from going off of that cliff. Why should we have passion for the lost? Because whether it's the season of Lent or any time of the year, you and I, we know people who are lost. You and I know people who are just simply wandering away somewhere. We know those who are in desperate need of preventing grace. And as Jesus makes his way to the cross, we are invited to participate in Jesus' mission here in the world. We are invited to leave the 99 and go and find the lost. We are to understand this individually. We are called to go and find the lost. But as a church corporately, we are also supposed to go and find the lost. The church of the Nazarene. We are to be an evangelistic church. We are to be a church that moves outside of our comfort zones and follows the Lenten journey of the Good Shepherd. We are to participate in his mission, going after the one who has wandered away. You and I, the church, individually and corporately, we are to be channels of prevenient and preventing grace in this world. So what does it mean for a church to be on a journey, corporately, seeking after the lost? What are we doing to reach out of our buildings and to those who need to know Christ? Where are we willing to go to find those who need him? These are the questions with which we must wrestle if we're going to join Jesus in his passion for the lost. Well, the parables continue. He's finished with the lost sheep, and and he continues into the next one in the chapter, and we encounter the woman, the woman with the lost coin. Now, the early church fathers, they likened the coin to the lost image of God in humanity. You see, you and I, we were created to reflect the image of God in this world. We were to be like him in this world, but as a result of humanity's sin, the image has been lost. The woman in the story, she's searching her house. She's looking everywhere for her precious coin. It's thought that in those days that women received a series of coins for their dowry. Sometimes you've seen in the Middle East where they sew them into their headdress. And really this was a life insurance policy for a woman because this was the only way that she would survive if her husband had died. So if you can imagine the way that she felt if she has lost one of her coins. 
And so she begins to look in all earnestness. She's going to search everywhere in her house. I've got to find that coin. I need to survive. Eventually she finds it because it has never left the house. That coin is always still in the house. But the woman in this story, she represents God. You see, the lost coin is the image. And the image is lost, but it's never totally gone The father continues to desperately search and continually seeks to restore the image. You and I, no matter what sin we have committed, the capacity to reflect the image of God is still in us. And the father will desperately search everywhere he can until he can find us, until that image can be restored in us. But we all have that hope. We've talked about the hope of transformation. This is the hope. And the promise is right here. The capacity will always remain. And there are times when we struggle with this idea that God is at work restoring his image. How can God take someone who has sinned so much and has participated in so much evil and yet transform them into a child of God? I was at a church not too long ago and I was preaching a little bit about this and afterwards a young teenage girl came up to me. She said, I have lived a life already in my young years of drugs and alcohol. She said, God has totally set me free. She said, but you know what? I've sat here and I have felt like I am a second-class citizen because of what I've done. She said, the people in this church, they've been in the church for generations. She said, but what you told today, that I can be completely restored, this hope of restoration. She said, I don't have to be second-class anymore. And that's the message of hope. It's there. It can be found. We can be totally restored, and we don't have to be second-class citizens in the family of God. Well, yeah, incredible hope of transformation. But now we encounter our text of the evening. It's Luke 15, 11 through 32. And yeah, we're going to read the story of the prodigal son. And now that you're comfy in your seats, would you mind standing for the reading of God's word? Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and he kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring him a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your commands, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Many of you have probably read Henry Nouwen's The Return of the Prodigal Son. Henry Nouwen takes a trip to St. Petersburg, Russia, and there he goes to the Hermitage Museum. It's in that museum that he encounters this painting. It's a painting by Rembrandt. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. Henry Nouwen is so taken by this painting that he, he ends up getting a chair, and you have to know in Russia that's a dangerous thing because the little ladies in the museum will beat on you, but he kind of got permission, and he finally got to sit in front of it, and he, he came back day after day, and he just let God speak to him through this. And, and there was just something in it that really transformed him in terms of his understanding of the prodigal son. And you know, Chuck and I had such an incredible privilege of serving the church in Russia for 13 years. And there was many a work and witness team that I took to St. Petersburg. And I have had the privilege many times of going to the Hermitage. And you just have to know my favorite thing in the Hermitage was to go and to find the corridor. You go past all these thousands of wonderful things to find, but I always wanted to go find that painting. And I would go down the hall and I would get to the place where that painting was. And actually... That's almost life-size of what that painting is. It's not a small thing. And when you stand in front of it, it's almost like you just simply get drawn into it. And somehow you just get drawn into the story. And the reality here for us tonight is that we are a part of the story. And Henry Nouwen says, maybe we need to try and figure out where our place is in this story. So I'd like us to consider, would it even be possible that we could be the prodigal son? We don't really like this child. He was rude. He asked for his inheritance. And basically, by wishing for the inheritance, he was wishing that his father was dead. We probably all can imagine some prodigals. We can imagine those who've said, I don't want anything to do with this. This religious thing, it's dead to me. I want to go somewhere else. 
You see, there are many people these days who've rejected their faith. They've rejected their parents, and maybe they've run far from home. And I do know that many of us in this room have children who have strayed far from home and from the faith, and our hearts are broken, and our hearts are terribly burdened for them. But this isn't just about them. I'd like to suggest that maybe we find ourselves in the story, you and I. We may discover that we are no longer at home. You see, now one says this to us. He says, I am so afraid sometimes of being disliked. Do any of us ever struggle with being disliked? Being the DS job is not the most liked job in the world I know. I'm afraid of being disliked. Maybe I'm afraid of being blamed or put aside, passed over, ignored, persecuted, and killed, that I'm constantly developing strategies to defend myself and thereby assure myself of the love that I think I need and deserve. And in so doing, I move far away from my father's home and I choose to dwell in a distant country. I'd like to suggest that maybe instead of embracing our calling as a holiness people in a holiness church, that there may be times, and please listen to me, I'm talking to myself as well, but there may be times that we've gotten caught up in the drive to be successful. And instead of remaining true to who God has called us to be, we, we want to look for the latest quick fix, or we want and need approval, but it just may be that by doing these things that we're driving ourselves further away from home than we could have ever even begun to imagine. You see, now and says to us, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. And as long as we keep running to find love and acceptance from others in this world, we will not be able to come home and receive the unconditional love of our Father. As long as we are searching for pats on the back from others, we will not come home and sit at the feet of the Father. Now and continues, he says maybe we might be the prodigal, he says, or, or maybe quite possibly, could we be the brother? <clears throat> the scribes and the Pharisees were probably the brother in the story, and if they were, I hate to say this, but there's a chance that we might find ourselves right there as well. You see, they were jealous that Jesus was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, here they were, they were the religious folks and they were the ones that were doing everything right. You know that they believed that if they just practiced holiness enough that they were gonna make that country holy again and that God would want to be there among them. If we really talked to them, I think we would believe that their hearts were looking in the right place and yet they weren't getting it. They just said it's not fair. And sometimes, and again, I'm speaking to myself here tonight, please, but sometimes we might feel that we have been toiling for so long on our own, or even as God's people, that it just doesn't feel like it's fair. You know, we're living in a difficult time for Christianity in the United States and Canada. Things are not the way they used to be 20 and 30 years ago, and nobody in this room needs to be told that. We all know that. And we may be in a situation that's extremely difficult, numerous challenges. We've got aging congregations, diminished giving, along with more and more empty pews. 
But, you know, if we look around us, there are those who are planting new churches and bringing people to Christ. And sometimes we just might be a little bit jealous of them. We have rapidly changing demographics. And those are going to threaten the way that things have always been. The color of the church will or should be changing in the years ahead. Timothy Tennant, the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, tells us 86% of the immigrant population in North America are likely to either be Christians or become Christians, and that's far above the national average. The immigrant population actually represents the greatest hope for Christian renewal in North America. He says we shouldn't see this as something that threatens us. We should see this as a wonderful opportunity. You see, the brother... He refused to prepare a welcoming environment for the prodigal. People will not want to come home if we don't create space where they can feel at home. We must be willing to consider what we might do as a church to adjust some of our practices so that we give our very best to those who need it the most. And yet I hear some of our churches saying, why should I spend money on a program for those homeless people? We want to have things nice for us in the church. But maybe we need to wrestle with some of those things and wrestle with what it is that we're willing to give away so that we can help bring some other children back home. But as the brother, we may even be tempted to exaggerate the condition of other churches or districts that are doing well. The brother in the parable, he complained. Did you ever catch this? He says to his father, but when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. When in this story did we ever hear that the, older brother, that the other brother was out with prostitutes? That's not even in the story. That's the brother's version of things. And somehow, he seems to take his brother's story and even make it even worse. We don't ever do that, do we? He's making things up so that he'll feel better. Oh, and I know, we look over at that new non-denominational church that's taken nearly half of our members, and we want to say, God, what about us? But then the father has this amazing answer. He says to the brother, you already had access to the entire inheritance. You see, everything the father had was already his. Presumably, he just didn't do anything with it. And the beauty for all of us is that we have access to everything in the kingdom of God. And instead of being jealous about what God might be wanting to do in the life of someone else, that doesn't matter. We need to live into what he has already given all of us. We are children of the kingdom. We have his divine possibilities all around us here. And the father never gives up on any of his children. Not on any of them. The ones that go and the ones that stay. It doesn't matter. God doesn't give up on us. And Jesus does not give up on his church. And Jesus has not given up on the church of the Nazarene. He is constantly reaching out and wanting to bring us back maybe to our home roots. I don't know. But maybe he just wants to help us from some attitudes that might be destructive. But ultimately, he's doing all of this 
Because what he wants for us is this. Is that not that we're the lost son and, and not that we're the other brother. The calling for us is that we are to be the father. And this really defines who we are as a holiness people. You see, by participating in the role of the Father, we are participating in Christ. Why should we have a passion for the lost? Because having a passion for the lost provides us with the opportunity to be partakers of the divine nature. It is in this way, in going after and ministering to the lost, that you and I become God's holy people. The command, be holy for I am holy, spells out for us in bold letters that holiness is not an abstract concept or a legal command. Rather, it's the call to imitate and reflect the character of God, the Father. That's our call, to be the Father. John Chrysostom in the fourth century said, God's mission was not to save people in order that they may be re remain barren or inert. In other words, folks, if we are saved, we are saved to step into God's mission in the world. We are to step in the place of the Father. We are to be active in the mission. And the things that break the heart of God are to break our heart. And we are to be out there to be the hands and feet of God in this world. John Wesley often noted in his letters that God's work is hindered in places where perfection is not insisted upon and holiness teaching and theology is not prominent. <laughs> Normally, said Wesley, the spirit does not cultivate love in those who wait in inactivity. He said, you got to get out. You got to get to work. He said, you got to be active in this. The message of holiness will never allow us to sit on the sidelines and not be engaged in the work of evangelism. I hate to tell you this, but holiness means we are an evangelistic church. You cannot have holiness without evangelism. They go together. We have a passion for the lost because the Father has a passion for the lost. And we will find ourselves in the place of the Father going out on the road every day and looking in the direction of the ones that are lost and waiting to bring them back home or searching out for them with outstretched arms. We're going to be there. This is the church. It's the church that has always believed in the message of holiness, the call to be God's holy people in the world. It is to be our focus during Lent and always. We are to be willing to give up everything so that we can identify with the Father. And the result will be an outpouring of transformational holy love. So why a passion for the lost? Because, you see, participating in the mission of Christ, seeking the lost, realizing we are lost, and welcoming home the lost will transform us. It's an important part of our journey we have to participate with Christ. We have to be moved with love and compassion and do everything we can to bring the lost back home. We welcome home the lost because we love God. And so that begs a question. If my heart doesn't break for the lost, how deep is my love for the Father? So remember, Jean, why did I want her to come to Christ? My confession is that at that time in my life, 
it was not out of my participation in the life with Christ, but that it was out of a desire for approval. Now, ultimately, God used my activity in her life to make a difference because God never wastes anything. Jean died a couple years ago. I was able to talk with her before she passed away. She didn't have a perfect life. But it wasn't the life she would have lived had she stayed at the gas station in Union, Missouri. And when I found that savings bond, I went on Facebook and I tracked down one of her daughters, made contact with her. Her daughter wanted to know, who are you? Had a little chance of interaction and I mailed that savings bond off to her daughter the other day. You see, along the way I've learned that I have to know more of Christ if I'm going to fully participate in the mission. If I'm to help welcome and bring people home, then I have to be willing to give up everything in my life that may be a barrier to me getting out on the roadside and joining the Father there. Now, I want to share something with you tonight. You might say, now, Carla, where are you going with this? But hang in here with me. Recently, there's been a new musical released on the life of P.T. Barnum. He's the man who's credited with inventing the modern-day circus. And in this musical, we discover that he becomes very distracted in life. He becomes distracted by the lights and, and success. And it takes him far away from where he had been. And the result is that by him getting sidetracked in his own life, all of those people who had been a part of the circus with him have become displaced. They can't come home because he doesn't have his act together. And there comes this moment when he discovers that he has to make a change. He has to say, this is it. From now on, this is what it's going to be like. From now on, this is going to be my change. And it sounds like an incredible spiritual moment. He says, from now on, things are going to be different. And the beauty is that once he makes that decision, it opens the floodgates for everybody else to be able to come home. You see, his disobedience had resulted in many prodigals waiting to be welcomed back home. There's a world out there <laughs> that needs to come back home. And we may think that they're not spiritually sensitive and that these are extraordinarily difficult times for us to be doing evangelism. And that may be true. But maybe we don't need to be looking at the external factors. May we begin tonight by asking God to look at us. Maybe the lost need a church that has such a burning passion for God. A church that is reaching out every day to welcome every single one back home again. And maybe tonight, we need to say from now on, from now on, this is who we're going to be. No excuses but we're going to be completely participating in the mission of God, completely surrendered, completely sold out. To say that we will be willing to stand day in and day out in the dirty and the dark corners of the world, always reaching out 
It's saying, come home. You're welcome to come back home again. You know, the reality is that there's not, we won't always have success stories. There won't always be great numbers. But we will fall desperately in love again with our holy God and allow our passion for him to drive our passion for the lost. And like many of you, yes, we took Chick Shaver's personal evangelism class years ago. At that time, do you remember, we all had that little picture of Jesus knocking at the door, a spiritual birth certificate. Tonight, you've got a new card on your table. It's the picture of Rembrandt's painting. And it's a new thing I'd like you to take with you. A reminder that we are to be the Father. This is what it means for us to be a holiness people. This is what it means to be us, to be the church of the Nazarene. We are to have a passion for the lost because we are to be united with our holy God in our God's mission. And if you look on the back, I just think about this. But while he was still far off, oh, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion. And he ran, and he put his arms around him, and he kissed him. That's who we are called to be. This is us. This is what God wants us to be as the church of the Nazarene. We cannot escape from holiness and evangelism.